0: Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Out in Los Angeles for a number of years, and he worked with the juvenile division, and during his years of service in Los Angeles... He had the misfortune of arresting many juvenile delinquents and working with them and with their parents. After years of working with delinquents, he came up with 12 rules for raising a delinquent child. These are his 12 rules. So if you want to raise a delinquent, then just follow these rules. It's a sure method. Number one, he said, begin with infancy to give the child everything he wants. And this way, he will grow up to believe the world owes him a living. Number two, when he picks up bad words, laugh. He'll think it's cute. Number three, never give him any spiritual training. Wait until he's 21 and then let him decide for himself. Number four, Avoid the use of the word wrong. It may develop a guilt complex. This will condition him to believe later, when he is arrested for stealing a car, that society is against him and he's being persecuted. Number five, pick up everything he leaves around, books, shoes, and clothing. Do everything for him so he will be experienced in throwing all responsibility onto others. Number six, let him read any printed matter he can get. Be careful that the silverware and drinking glasses are sterilized, but let his mind feed on garbage. And I would add to that, let him look at MTV and some things such as that. Number seven, quarrel frequently in the presence of your children. In this way, they will not be surprised or too shocked when the home is broken up later. Number eight, Give a child all the spending money he wants. Never let him earn his own. Why should he have things as tough as you had them? Number nine, satisfy his every craving for food, drink, and comfort. See that every sensual desire is gratified. Denial may lead to harmful frustration. Number ten, take his part against neighbors, teachers, and policemen. They are all prejudiced against your child. Number eleven, when he gets into real trouble, apologize by saying, I never could do anything with him. And number twelve, prepare for a life of grief. You will be apt to have it. If you want to raise a delinquent child, it's easy to do so. But if you want to raise a well-mannered, well-adjusted, Child that loves the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, it takes work. It takes prayer. It takes perseverance. We're studying what the Bible says about training children. God has not left us in the dark concerning this most crucial issue. In fact, He has given us everything we need in His Word to raise well mannered, well behaved, godly young men and women. We've been looking at God's design over in Ephesians chapter 6. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Also, we provided a place in your bulletin for you to take notes, and let me encourage you to do so. Also, we are combining this week's message and last week's message on the same audio tape. And so if you want to order these messages, you just have to order one tape. So we have reduced the cost in half for you. For dollars, whatever the cost is, and I don't get any of that money. But whatever the cost is, you can have both sermons and uh, make copies if you want, pass it along, uh, listen to it, uh, because it's just God's plan for raising kids. Last week, we saw stage one. That is the controlling stage. That's found in verse 1 of Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Right. The key word for the controlling phase, the stage, is obedience. Your child must be taught to obey your word quickly and with the right response. That is the first and foremost task that you have as a parent in that child's life when it comes to his training. Until you teach him to obey your voice and to do so quickly and with the right attitude, you can do nothing else in child training. You cannot go any further in the process until he knows that he must obey your voice. God has placed you in that family as the authority in that home. The family is not a democracy. You as a parents are God's authority in that home. Your word is law. God has given you to the responsibility to make sure that child obeys. You will find he will not readily obey. That is most kids. If they're very compliant, they may go along. But you'll see a day that they'll say, no, I don't want to. So there is the problem of conflict in child raising. Expect it. Look for it. Don't think, mothers, that you can go through raising your kids and avoid all conflict. It's impossible. And if you're a person that just hates conflict, this may present a problem for you. But just come to live with it. Expect it. Look for it. Because they are born... They're born depraved with an indwelling sin. They're not going to grow up perfect. You have got to mold and shape them, the Scripture says. And they're not going to want to be shaped the way you want to shape them because of that indwelling sin. And that's where the conflict comes in. And the Bible only gives one remedy for the rebellion in the life of a child. Proverbs says, foolishness, stubbornness, arrogance is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of reproof will drive it far from him. That switch is God's only remedy for the rebellion in the heart of a child. And if you'll start early with that and follow God's plan, by the time they're six or seven, there won't be that many occasions that you'll probably have to switch, especially if they're girls. Now guys, it may go a little older than that, depending on the guy. But you'll find that it it, it slackens off as they get older. Now I've talked to parents sometimes who say, well, you know, I switch my child, but it just doesn't work. And they usually say, I spike my child, but it just doesn't work. But well now, unless your child has tremendously great psychological problems and needs to be under professional care continually, and I don't think he does, it will work. It is God's method. It will work. The problem is you're not doing it right. I've always found that to be the case. Either one of two or three things are going on if it's not working. Number one, the parent is not really... Spanking or switching the child. They may pop them on the leg one time with their hand. Now, you know, or pop them on the diaper. Well, you know, that doesn't hurt. There's got to be some pain involved, and the switch on that leg is that stinging pain that's needed. Or either maybe they're just doing it just a couple of times, and the child just gets mad. You know, he doesn't get past the mad to the glad that you're stopping. All right? So you've got to get them past the mad to the glad. Now, they don't have to be crying. They don't have to cry. You are the Bible doesn't say spank them until they cry. It says until you bring their will under subjection. And you can tell that, remember, by telling them to do something after you spank them. Go sit in that chair. Go to your room. How quickly do they respond? How quickly do they obey? If they obey quickly, then you've brought their will under subjection. If they resist and don't want to do what you're telling them to do, you haven't spanked them enough. And you may have to go back and complete the process. All right, number two, either you're not consistent enough. You can't do it one time and not spank them the next time when they do it and expect to tr- train them not to do it. You've got to be consistent. So if you're having problems, come talk to me. I'll be glad to talk with you. And I think we can work it out. And it'll work. It'll work if you'll do it right. Do it God's way. Now, we're against child abuse. I want to say that every time because I want any misunderstandings. furthest thing from my heart and soul is physical abuse of a child. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about biblical discipline which includes spanking with a switch and it will not cause internal damage. Now I I hesitate to use paddles and I don't use them because that can cause damage because it is a hard object. A switch is flexible and it's not going to cause any deep, any deep uh, wounds. It's not going to hurt the tissue underneath the skin as such and so be careful what you use. Uh, You don't want to use anything that will cause any kind of damage to your child. You just want to bring the the stinging sensation of those legs. If they're a little older, maybe a teenage boy, you might use a willow branch or something, but uh, still, you've got to use that to get his attention. But uh, anyway, that's the first stage. You have got to bring them under your control. Generally, that lasts around five or six years of age. Now let me say, these stages, just as everything involving humans, is not ironclad, cut and dry. You will... Always say, when they start off, your teaching, your controlling is real high. I mean, you'll have to control them 98, 99 to 100% of the time when they're one, two, three years old. And the teaching will be minimum at those ages. I mean, you don't sit down with a one-year-old and try to explain to him why uh, he shouldn't do something, run out in the road, you'll get hit by a car. You can't explain that to a one-year-old. He doesn't understand it, so you don't even try. But as they get older, the teaching gets more, the controlling gets a little less, And by the time they get around 6 or 7, your controlling is about even with the teaching. And then as they get older, you begin to teach more. You have to control less because, again, they respect you. And then they get on up about 15, 16, 17. A little bit of controlling, but a lot of teaching. So you see, it kind of works this way. And again, depending on where your child is. He may be 13, but if he's acting like a 4-year-old, then you treat him like a 4-year-old. You discipline him like a 4-year-old. He has to show you by his responsible behavior that he can can receive the teaching that you're giving him. If he's a six-year-old, but he is a mature six-year-old, and he receives your teaching with great respect, then you will treat him as an older child because of his ability to receive your teaching. So again, it's not a cut and and dried, hard-and-fast thing. You have to depend on the Lord's wisdom and pray uh, for what exactly needs. But these are general guidelines that will work because they're God's guidelines. Now the second stage is the teaching stage. And that's found in verse 2. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It is the father's primary responsibility to discipline the children. God has placed that responsibility on us fathers. Now the mother's part is indispensable, and she will by necessity probably have a more active role if she's home with the kids all day. But that does not relieve you of having the main responsibility. The buck stops with you when it comes to the training of your children. I'm going to share with you the stages in God's plan for child training, for teaching. The first stage is to set the standard. Set the standard. Romans 4.15 says, Where there is no law, there is no transgression. You cannot hold somebody accountable for doing something if there has not been a standard set that they should not do it. That's why we have law books filled uh, with laws about things that should or should not be done. They recognize, everybody recognizes, you cannot hold someone responsible and accountable for a rule that's never been set. So you must first set the standard. Clearly state the rule that your children are to follow. Now, they do not have to be in agreement with the rule. Remember, you're the parents. You set the rule. Now, it might be your room is to be kept clean and straight. Or, you're not to talk on the phone more than 30 minutes a day. Or, you must pick up your toys. When you leave them outside, you must bring them in. Whatever rules you decide on, you need to set the rule first. Secondly, you need to make sure the rule is clearly understood. And sometimes parents don't realize the limited understanding of their children. And they will state a rule knowing what that rule is in their mind, but the kids don't have any idea what it is. So it needs to be clearly understood. A rule that the child can comprehend. Have you ever tried to teach a two-year-old or even a three-year-old not to lie? And you can't just go up to a three-year-old and say, do not lie. Even a four-year-old. They don't know what lying is. To a child, fantasy, and fact, are so closely connected. Well, how do you teach a three- or four-year-old not to lie? Well, we're going through this with one of ours, teaching them not to lie. Well, you have to say, now, lying is when you say something that's not the way it is. And you probably, that won't really communicate that much, so you need to act it out. All right? You do role playing. All right? Like you're the parent, and you take one of the other child children, or probably take one of the uh, a teddy bear or uh, some kind of toy uh, doll or something, and you say, okay, now, look at me. I'm you. This is your sister. This is a doll. And you reach out and you hit the doll. Now, you'll be mommy. Or daddy. Now you ask me, did I hit this doll? And they ask you and you say, no. Now you say, that's a lie. (laughs) Because I did do it. And you have to just kind of explain to them that lying means you say things that didn't really happen or you say you didn't do things that you really did. And then practice telling the truth. So you have to make it so they can understand it. Another thing you might do with younger children, it sometimes helps them to remember it, is have them make a chart and have them draw pictures. Like uh, at our house, we're working on not whining and crying when you're told to do something. So we have them draw a picture of a little boy or a little girl crying and whining. That's what they shouldn't do. And you, you might want to put a little Bible verse. Now, they can't read, but you can just put a little verse up and remind them what it is. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Just, again, reinforce some Scripture in with it. Then let them draw a picture of... What will happen if they do whine of fuss? If it's go to their room, then draw a picture of them in their room. If it's they will get a spanking, then draw a picture of them getting a spanking. Let them draw that. And then after you put the different rules that you're working on at that time, draw them on a piece of paper, put them on the refrigerator, put them on the door somewhere so that child can see it and it'll be a reminder of them of what they're done, what they're doing and what they're not to do and what the punishment's going to be if they do it. So you want to be clearly understood. Now, if you have older kids, teenagers even, you may even want to make a, uh, a list of the rules and the punishment for those rules and let them keep that in their room. It wouldn't hurt to have a checklist. And each night they go down the checklist, clean my room, clean the bathroom, finish my homework. And they go down the list and it has the punishment that will come to them if they have failed to keep the rule. And that way they can have it before them and they can keep up with it but you want it to be clearly understood. Explain to your children what the standard is and make sure they comprehend it. Make sure they understand it. Role-playing, drawing pictures, different ways to do it. The right way, the wrong way, different things. Third thing is give biblical principles if appropriate. If it's appropriate, and that depends on their age and maturity, you should have biblical reasons for why you set that standard. If the standard is you clean up your room, well, what's the biblical principle? The b- biblical principle is that God is a God of orderliness. 1 Corinthians 14 says that everything be done in an orderly manner. Look at creation. God didn't stick trees in the sky. Everything has its place in creation. Man messes it up, but when God set it in motion, it all has its place. That's orderliness. And so you want your child to have a clean room, a straight room, because orderliness is is one of God's principles. So you might want to give a biblical principle to it. If you want to teach them to say, yes ma'am and uh, uh, yes sir, and no ma'am and no sir, then honoring parents. That's a way to honor parents and honor adults. And the scripture says we should honor those who are older than us and we should honor our parents. We should respect authority. If the standard is no use of alcohol, then you want to give them some biblical principles. Alcohol has been shown to be harmful to the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says our body is a temple of God. Therefore, we're to keep our body intact and keep it uh, from, from harm. Talk about the witness. Somebody sees them and that may cause them to stumble. 1 uh, Romans 14 talks about not causing a weaker brother to stumble. Watch your witness. And so you have different biblical principles that you can bring to bear. And the older the child, the more you will want to saturate that in biblical principles. Now, what you may find is there may be some standards that you've set that you won't be able to find any biblical standards or principles to back it up. And you may want to say, well, maybe this is not really a good standard. Maybe this is just something I've grown up with that I was told to do, but, you know, like my folks wouldn't let me go down to the pool hall. That was just a standard. You know, and and my dad just felt like if I got down there, the temptations might be greater and might get in trouble. So he said... Don't go to pool hall. Now, I can see some wisdom in that. And I can see some of the reasons for it. But again, if you think it's right for your child to go to the pool hall, I don't see anything in Scripture that says don't go play pool. I mean, some churches even have pool tables in their family life centers. Can you believe it? That's right. They do. And so it's nothing wrong with pool itself, you know. It's what goes on in the environment that they were concerned about, of course. So you want to see the standards that you set that they have biblical foundation and principles behind them. And another value in this is when your child gets out and he's around peers and they start pressuring him to do something that's against the standards that you've set, and if all you've said to him is, don't do it because I said so, then he gets against that pressure. If they exert more pressure on him than what you're exerting, then he's going to cave in and do it. He had not any reason not to. And they'll give him all these, man, it'll be fun, and we'll do this, and we'll do that, and everybody's doing it, and they'll give all these reasons. And all that kid's got to fall back on as well. Uh, Dad said not to do it just because he said so. But if you've given them solid biblical reasons why they shouldn't do it, then when those peers come and say, hey, let's go do so-and-so and so-and-so, and they start giving those reasons why it's all right, and they'll have those biblical reasons in their mind that you've taught them why it's not all right, and they'll be able more than likely to stand against that pressure because they can have solid reasons for standing on God's Word and what God says. So it's important to give those standards and give the biblical aspects. Now number five, what are some areas of standards that we should set before our children? Obviously those that involve biblical commands, such as do not lie, and God hates lying lips, lying lips an abomination to the Lord. Uh, to honor your parents, honor those in authority, that's a command. To love, that's a command. So you'll definitely want to set standards that deal with biblical commands. Also, standards that deal with biblical principles, such as orderliness, self-control, uh, respect for property, stewardship. So you'll want to have standards that deal with those as well. All right, once you've set the standard with your child, uh, and it's good at that point, now, jump back to number four. I think I skipped over it. And that should be state instead of start. State the punishment. State the punishment when you set the standard. It's always best to do that. It's best because then you are not in the heat of the emotional battle when you administer the punishment. If you go ahead ahead of time and say, Okay, this is the standard. If you don't straighten up your room, if I come in and your room is not straightened up, then you will lose this privilege. You will not be able to talk on the phone for this day, this period. Whatever you decide, or you'll have to not only clean up your room tomorrow, but you'll have to straighten up your sister's room. Or you'll not only have to clean up your room, but you'll have to clean the bathrooms. I mean, you set whatever the punishment is, but go ahead and set that when you set the standard. That way the child knows ahead of time, if I break it, this is what i got to do. So nobody can yell, that's not fair. I mean, you knew it. You knew what the punishment was going to be, didn't you? Well, yeah. Okay, now you've danced, so pay the fiddler. It's time. And you're teaching them responsibility and consequences of their actions. So it's best to go ahead and set the punishment when you set the standard. Now let me say also that sometimes your kids will do things that you didn't dream of. And so you didn't set a standard on that. I mean, you didn't even dream about some human doing that and especially for boys, right? And they do it. I mean, somebody told me one time they caught their kids up on the roof. That's right, they had some boys and they looked out and they were up on the roof. Now, they'd probably never thought to say, now don't go get on the roof. I mean, you just don't think to tell kids something like that. Well, when you see something like that, when they have obviously done something that you do not approve of, use that as an occasion to set the standard. I mean, you can't punish them for something they didn't realize was wrong. And you say, well, they should have known that was wrong. Well, how would they know? I mean, nobody told them, and and they're not as smart as you are. How did they know? So use that to set the standard. I mean, I got my boys a a pup tent for Christmas, a two-man pup tent. And I had visions of us going camping, you know, as they got older. And we even put it up in their room and let them put the sleeping bags in it. And they could sleep in it. They were sleeping in it every night rather than sleeping in their beds. And I kept thinking, why would I waste money on a bed when they could just buy a tent and they could sleep on the floor? But anyway, they enjoyed that. Well, I came home one day from... Uh, Terry and I had to go somewhere and we came home and they had gotten the scissors and they had cut that tent and holes were all in that tent. Now, when the minute I saw that, my blood pressure must have jumped up at least 100 points. I could feel the blood rushing into my face. I was mad. I could not believe they had done that. And in the heat of the moment, I was about to administer some rather strong discipline when my cool, calm, collected wife put her hand on my shoulder and said, well, I remember we never told them not to do this. And I said, well, they should have known better. I mean, they're not idiots. They ought to know not to do something like that. But then as I thought about it, I had to realize we had not. I mean, just hadn't thought to say, hey, don't take the knife and cut your tin up. <laughs> I mean, they didn't realize they were tearing it up. They were just having fun with a pair of scissors, just seeing what it would cut. Right? Like he gets a knife and he sees what it'll do in your, in your dining room table, just to see what designs it'll make. You know? So we use that as an occasion to set the standard and to set it very Clearly and to set forth what the punishment would be if it was ever done again. But anyway, so sometimes things will happen and you'll have to use that to set the standard. All right, second step is to rebuke for, this, for disobedience. Rebuke for disobedience. Luke seventeen three says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, rebuke just means to call them on the carpet. It means that you tell them that they're wrong. It means you expose their wrongdoing. When a child breaks a standard, you need, as a parent, to declare them guilty of breaking that standard. You walk in and the room is in a mess. They get home from school that day, you say, come in, we need to have a talk. Your room was in shambles when you left this morning. You know the standard is your room is to be straight when you leave. You have broken the rule. You declare them guilty. That's needed to keep down self-justification. As a part of our human nature that will justify what we do, even if it's wrong, we'll justify it as being all right. And so we need those in authority over us, in this case the parents, to declare the child as guilty. You have broken the rule. This is wrong. Now that is needed for the next step as well. Now let me just briefly tell you, there are three levels of disobedience that you need to be aware of. When your child disobeys and when he breaks a standard, that's what he's done. There are three levels of diso- disobedience and what you do depends on the level. Number one is forgetfulness. The child just absolutely forgets. I mean really, he just forgets the standard. Now this may happen the first couple of times after you set a standard. Now, obviously, if you've been doing it for six months, and the child comes in and says, you know, I forgot to clean my room this morning. Well, that's kind of stretching it. You know, I mean, if you had a big test, maybe. But the but first few times, they may just honestly forget. And they have disobeyed. And they should receive the punishment you set up, but they've not rebelled. They've just ignorantly and, and just forgot. And then the second type of disobedience is what we call not thinking disobedience. Your children ever sometimes just seem like they turn their minds off? And you think, you couldn't have been thinking when you did that. I mean, your mind must have just been put in neutral. Right? So, sometimes it's just not thinking disobedience. They just really didn't didn't think. It just didn't dawn on them. It, for some reason or another, their mind was someplace else. And you'll want to take that into consideration. Again, they've broken the standard, so they need to be administered the punishment, but Again, it's not outright rebellion, which is the third level of disobedience. Outright rebellion. I mean, they know it's wrong. They know they're breaking the standard, but they just do it anyway. An example of this would be a little boy. Uh, He's about 8 or 9, 10 years of age. He's playing out. His mom said, okay, you can play ball, but you must stay inside the backyard fence. I don't want you going outside the fence. Okay? So the boy's throwing his ball up against the wooden fence and he's bouncing back and he's catching it. Right. He throws it over the fence, and he just just wants to get his ball. All he knows is his ball's over the fence, and so he just rushes out to get his ball. Well, he's violated the standard. He's gone outside the yard. Now, that was forgetfulness. He just, just didn't dawn on him. He just didn't think about the standard. All right. Secondly, the boy throws the ball over the fence, and again, without thinking, he just goes out and gets it, He's forgotten. He's just not willful. He hasn't just outright rebelled. It just, again, didn't remember. He was concerned about his ball. Third guy, same guy, but he's throwing his ball against the fence. Mama's up washing dishes looking out the window. He sees her looking out the window. He's throwing a ball up against the fence. He looks up, Mom's gone, so he purposely throws the ball over the fence just so he can have an excuse to go out and get it. And of course, when mama calls him on the carpet, what does he say? Oh, I had to go get my ball. You know, it was out in the field. And, you know, I didn't mean to throw it over. But he does. He has willfully disobeyed. Now, what you run into is when a child willfully disobeys, that is, when they are in rebellion, then the punishment is not only administered, but also the rod is brought into the situation. You see, spiking and punishment are not the same thing. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But if they are willfully rebellion, there's only one remedy for outright rebellion, and that is the rod of reproof. So, second stage, you rebuke them for their disobedience. You tell them you have done wrong, you have broken the standard. Thirdly, the child confesses his guilt. Again, Luke 17 says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he repents. So he needs to confess his guilt. All he needs to do is say, you're right, I was wrong. Yes, I have broken the standard. I didn't clean my room up. Yes, I told a lie. Yes, whatever his offense was, he needs to admit that. You say, well, why does he need to confess it? Well, it's a biblical principle for one thing, and that's enough. But secondly, it helps cleanse his soul from that guilt that he has from breaking the standard. There's a cleansing that comes with that confession admitting, yes, I broke the standard. Now, I'm not one for making my kids say, say you're sorry. because I think a lot of times that's teaching them to lie because they aren't sorry. Right? So I say, say, I did wrong and I shouldn't have done it. Now, whether they feel that or not, it's a fact. They did do wrong and they shouldn't have done it. And they're having to admit with their own lips that they did wrong. Okay? So, you might want to try that rather than saying, say you're sorry. Say, I did wrong and I should not have done that. When they hit another child, rather than saying they're sorry, man, they're not sorry they hit that guy. He's glad he hit him. It was fun. He enjoyed it. But make him say, I did wrong. I should not have done it. All right, you come to the place you've rebuked your child. Your child says to you, you're right, Dad. You're right, Mom. I broke the standard. I shouldn't have done this. All right, then you move to the next step, which is you forgive your child. Now, when you come to the confession, though, You may have to have a time lapse between the time you rebuke them and the time you go back for the confession. In the teen years, when you call them on the carpet and they have broken a standard and you have to rebuke them for that, it may be an emotional time for both parent and child. And it may be that you will need to say to them, now you go into your room and you think about what you've done and I'll be in to talk to you in a moment. It may be that they are so upset and so mad, they do not want to confess that they've done wrong. But if they simply cool down a little bit and think about it a little bit, then they'll be willing to say, you're right, I did wrong. So sometimes it's wise to have a little time lapse between the rebuke and the time of confession. And I say that because of this. If a child will not admit that he's done wrong, then he is in rebellion against you as the authority in the family. He is refusing your right to rule over him. He's saying, no, I'm not wrong. You say I am, but I reject your authority over me. I say I'm not. Now that's rebellion. Well, you know what we do about rebellion. The rod has to come into play. And so sometimes it's just because of their anger that they are not ready to confess at that moment. Let them cool down. Then go in and talk to them. If they still say, I'm not wrong. I don't care what you say, I'm not wrong. Now they are rebelling against you as the authority in the home and you must bring out the rod of reproof until they are willing to admit, yes, I did wrong. You are right. And I read one, about one mother who's had a 13-year-old son And she'd waited kind of late to start the process, but she began the process. And the boy was a strong-willed guy. He was a stubborn guy. And she went through this process, and she rebuked him, and he said, No, I'm not wrong. Man, she just spanked him and spanked him, and he never would admit it. She just wore out and said, Okay, you stay in your room. When your dad gets home, he'll continue what I didn't finish. And dad got home, and the boy finally admitted, Yes, you're right, I did wrong. But you know, once they got through that one, they didn't have any trouble after that. When they rebuked him, he said yes. Because he knew what would come if he didn't. Again, that confession is important. It helps cleanse the soul from the guilt. Now, next one is you forgive the child. Again, Luke 17, 3 says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Now, once your child acknowledges that they've broken the standard, then forgive them. Let them know that that you love them, that, that the relationship... that the fellowship is restored. Uh, If it's a young child, you might want to hug them. You might want to sit them in your lap, Uh, whatever. But let them know that there is full and total forgiveness on your part, that the fellowship has been restored. Assure them of your full forgiveness. And this forgiveness continues to cleanse that guilt from their conscience. Let them know you love them and you forgive them. After you've gone through the forgiveness, then the punishment comes in. You say, well, that seems to be out of order. Why not punish them first and then forgive them? But what does God do? Does God forgive us or do we experience a punishment for our sins first? He forgives us. When we confess our sin, He forgives us. But the consequence of that sin will come later. And that, in a sense, is a punishment for that sin. So you must administer the punishment after you have gotten the confession and after you have forgiven them. Then it's time for the punishment. Hebrews 12, 7 says, God deals with you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now punishment needs to meet three criteria to be biblical punishment. First, it needs to be just. Now turn over in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 22. I know our time is uh, going late, but this is important information. It could save you a lot of heartache in years to come. So bear with me. Exodus 22. Here we have in the Old Testament some offenses and punishments, some standards and some punishments that are given in the Old Covenant that Israel was to use. Now these punishments teach us three things about a biblical punishment. First, it is to be just. You've heard the phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now that's a standard of equality. A standard of justice. That means if a guy gets mad at you and he rags back and hits you and knocks out your tooth, you don't get to go pluck his eye out. I mean, that wouldn't be just. But a tooth for a tooth. That's justice. That's equity. And so the punishment is to be the just penalty for any wrong that's done. A just punishment for any wrong that's done. Also, secondly, it needs to be corrective. It needs to be corrective. It needs to correct the wrong that's been done. For instance, if you tell your son, okay, now I know you guys have been playing ball out in the backyard and I want y'all to stop because, you know, uh, Miss Jones's house is over there and as a possibility y'all might hit a foul ball and knock out one of her windows. So I don't want y'all playing ball in the backyard anymore. Well, the next day comes around and uh, his friends come over. Hey, boy, we're going to play ball today. Well, it just slips his mind what dad said. He doesn't remember it. So they get out playing ball until he hits that foul ball and whack. that goes the window pane at Ms. Jones's house. Then he remembers, uh-oh, dad said we were not to do that. Dad comes home. Mom says, go talk to your dad. He talks to Dad. The window's broken. He says, Okay, son. He said, The punishment is going to be, number one, you will have to take money from your allowance and money that you have earned and you'll have to pay to have that window fixed. You'll have to pay somebody to put it in. You'll have to pay for the window paint. And you'll have to go over to Miss Jones' house and you'll need to apologize to her and tell her that you did wrong and that you should not have done that. And therefore, you will seek to make right the wrong that you've done. So a just punishment seeks to correct the wrong that's been done. Okay? The standard is clean the room. If they fail to meet the standard, not only do they have to clean their room, but they have to clean the kitchen for mom. See? Might as well help you out, mom, while you're going at it. So use punishments that'll help you out too. Right? I mean, don't make a punishment that you've got to suffer for. I mean, this grounding stuff, your mom is harder on her than the kid to make sure the kid stays in the room and whatever. So... Use a punishment that will correct the wrong. Alright? Thirdly, it must be a deterrent. It should deter them from doing it again. That's why they not only have to clean their room, but they have to clean the kitchen as well. If you only had to clean your room when you didn't do it, well, you might get by with it and not have to clean it. At worst, you would have to clean it and you have to do that anyway. So you add more to it to make it a deterrent. Now, this is what we have in Exodus 22. Look at what it says. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Now, you see the justice there? Ox for ox, sheep for sheep. If he steals one of your oxen, you don't go take his house away from him. That wouldn't be just. It's just. He has to pay ox for ox. Also, As you can see, not only is it just, but it it also has a corrective nature to it. He took your sheep; he's got to give you five sheep back. He took your ox; he's got to give you five oxen back. All right, that's a corrective nature. You're getting back what you lost. And also, look at the deterrent nature to it—five to one. I mean, he thinks when he's getting ready to steal this oxen. Now, if I get caught, I've got to pay back five. That's a deterrent. If he only had to pay back the one, he might say, well, if I get caught, I only lose one. If I don't get caught, I'm ahead. Look at number two. Verse two. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun is risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. In other words, somebody breaks in your house at night and if you take their life, then there's no blood guilt it because you didn't know what they had in their hands, what weapons, what intent they had. But if it's in the daytime and he doesn't have a weapon, then you are not free to take his life because you can see that he's not after your life at that point. Uh, so that was the rules in the Old Testament days. If you look through these chapters, you'll see that principle of justice, corrective aspect, and a deterrent coming out. And that should be your goal in the punishment you set for breaking the standard with your children. Just use common sense. What makes sense? Right? If they don't complete their homework by a certain time, then they don't get any TV privileges the next day, no phone privileges or whatever. Take away until they've completed all their homework and then whatever extra you might have given. But you must take back. Sometimes parents don't make the punishment high enough to deter the kid doing it again. And if you're punishing your child and he keeps on doing it, look back at the punishment. Maybe it's not high enough. Maybe the cost is not great enough because the thought is he thinks before he does it, now if I do this, then this is what's going to happen. And it's not worth it. It's not worth it to have to take out the trash for two weeks because I don't want to take it out today. Right? And if a child keeps saying, well, I forgot, I forgot. Now, you might accept that once, maybe twice. But if it comes a third time, then you need to say, well, I'm going to help you remember. And then you do something to help him remember. It's amazing how quickly they remember the next time, right? It's because they're not accepting your word is important enough to remember it. So give it some punch behind it, some authority behind it, and they'll remember it. These are very simple steps. God has not made it difficult. Simple steps. Set the standard. Set the punishment when you set the standard. Let it be just. Let it be corrective in nature. Let it also be a deterrent. Secondly, when your child sins, rebuke him. Call him on the carpet. Say, you have done wrong. You have broken the standard. Then he must confess to you. Admit he has done wrong. Then forgive him. Restore that fellowship. And then administer the punishment that you've decided on ahead of time. And if you'll follow God's plan, your children will be well-mannered and well-behaved. Now there may be a very small percent who because of some rebellious, extra-rebellious streak might tend to stray away. But if you will follow these principles, I can almost assure you 100% that you'll see results, positive results, in the life of your children. If you'll start them soon enough. Because they're God's standards. They're God's plan. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that as fathers, that we would hold these standards before our families. That we would work with our wives to enforce these standards and these steps in the discipline of our children. That we might indeed raise up well-trained, well-behaved children. And no matter how old our children are, may we not feel that we've waited too late, but start now to implement your plan for child training. In Jesus' name.